What is up, people? And thank you so much for listening into this episode of the New Generation Sports Talk Podcast. I'm your host, EJ Stewart. Boy, we had a big week one in the NFL this past weekend. A lot of stuff happening. Um, a lot of surprises. A lot of uh, uh, you know things that maybe we were expecting to see. And then, of course, Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown happened. He's continuing to happen. More drama involving uh, Mr. Brown came down this, this evening, uh, just an hour ago. Um, though was something that was trickling on the internet uh, even during the whole weekend with his release from the Raiders and all that stuff that was happening. So we'll get to him in a minute, but we have plenty of other NFL stuff happening. We'll talk Browns, we'll talk Jets, we'll talk Vikings. We'll get to as much stuff as we can. Like Obviously, we can't get to every matchup and every team that uh, that played. There'll be one team we won't be talking about as much <laughs> uh, this whole season, which you'll know why later on, very later on in the show. Um, so we're excited to talk about that. And we'll sneak in some basketball if we can. Kevin Durant uh, finally broke his silence since leaving uh, the Golden State Warriors for the Brooklyn Nets. He'll talk about uh, how he felt playing Golden State, what he thinks of OKC since he left there uh, four years ago, and what he sees for the future in Brooklyn with Kyrie Irving. So really good show lined, lined up. I'm really excited to do it. Joining me is my co-host, Kendall Stewart doing it show remotely from Kent from uh, Philadelphia. Uh, Kendall, what's up, dude? What are you uh, looking forward to talking about today? Yeah, EJ. Obviously, the uh, week one of the NFL season kicked off, so uh, that's obviously a big topic to talk about. So it should be interesting. Yeah, obviously, whenever you know week one happens, it's a big deal, and I I don't know why. I you know every year I think when week one comes around, some years you feel better than others. I don't know why that maybe Antonio Brown, not for what happened tonight, obviously, but the, just the whole fiasco and the whole circus around the situation with the, Brown, with the Raiders. I will, I didn't get to check to see what the ratings were this weekend, but I feel like it definitely added a jolt to the beginning of this NFL season. Um, there's no one that can argue that this was good for, this was not this bad for the NFL, that this whole AB thing happened when it did. This was fantastic for the NFL in terms of the conversation and the interest in the league. I feel like this week one was more, there was more excitement and more attention to it than in recent history, which is saying a lot since the NFL, but I thought um, Antonio really brought a lot of that with his foolishness uh, to the forefront. But um, we're going to bring the, begin the show talking about him. Uh, because obviously there's a lot to break down since the last time we were on this show. Um, we didn't do a, a, a preview of week one, so we really didn't get to the second part of the AB fiasco that was happening in Oakland. But after a, a situation in which he apparently threatened to uh, beat up Mike Mayock at a practice, um, after posting an Instagram photo of him getting fined for various absences at meetings and team functions uh the situation in oakland essentially blew up um it included a a massive fine it included an apology from ab and allegedly emotionally emotional apology according to reports and then included a really well edited but bizarre video posted on his youtube uh with john gruden speaking to ab about the whole situation with the circus that's happened over the last few weeks and him not being there and him missing practice and him being just AB, for lack of a better term. Uh, and that ended up with another massive, massive fine that included uh, $215,000 or you know, almost $300,000 for uh, conduct detrimental to the team, which in turn voided his $30 million in guaranteed guarantees, which led to his uh, request for release. 
So the Raiders granted that release. He was a free agent for about two hours, and he is now a member of the New England Patriots. And there seems to be a lot of excitement around the New England Patriots organization about the acquisition of Antonio Brown. I have seen a lot of people criticize him for basically rewarding Brown for what was, uh, I think, at best, unprofessional (laughs) behavior um, in Oakland. But uh, the story is taking a, a turn um, this tonight because uh, a new report coming out that Antonio Brown has been uh, has been sued uh, by a woman who is claiming she he sexually assaulted her. Um, this is his former trainer, Brittany Taylor, who uh, I guess identified herself in this uh, situation. Uh, she accuses uh, the new Patriots receiver of sexually assaulting her in three separate occasions in 2017. And in 2018, I do have to preface that for those in the know on social media, this isn't that yeah, new. Old, man. Incarcerated Bob. Yeah, I, I never I never wanted to mention Incarcerated Bob's name on this show ever. <laughs> but yeah, his, his name is worth being mentioned today because he was very much on this situation for a while now. And... I don't want to cast aspersions onto anyone because this is obviously uh, going to be an investigation and we'll see how it plays out. Um, but he does lay out what looks like direct messages from AB to some other woman who knows this accuser. And um, and, and they kind of lay out the idea that this woman is trying to frame him and trying to uh, uh, extort him for money. I do find that it's interesting the timing that now this lawsuit officially drops days before those uh, leaked DMs on I- IG were being posted. So, uh, nonetheless, this uh, AV saga continues. I, I would, if, if incarcerated Bob knew that this situation with this woman was happening, I can't imagine that the Patriots didn't know. Though, at the same time, I thought the KP situation, that Dodd Mavericks had to know that something was happening and they seem to not know or pretending like they didn't know once uh, the, the question seemed to arise about what the deal was with KP and his, until when I say KP, I mean, Chris Asporzingis for those not knowing, um, and his, uh, alleged sexual, uh, al- al- sexual assault situation. So I don't even know where to begin, Kendall. I mean, obviously this is, this now adds a, a totally new wrinkle to the situation. Um, Brown's lawyer, says that uh, they have not been in contact with the league regarding this uh, lawsuit. And he says that um, uh, Brown and this woman uh, were involved in a consensual personal relationship and anything that happened was entirely consensual and that AB will leave no stone unturned and will aggressively defend himself, including uh, all of his rights in countersuits. So, like I said, a lot of them packed there. Uh, you can take it wherever you want, Kendall. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know. Look, I mean, I, I'm going to assume that, you know, the, the legal system will play itself out and that New England and the NFL won't act on this. That's probably a big assumption. But I'm going to get, I, I mean, I, just, I don't know how this procedure will play itself out legally, so I can't really comment on how. Uh, what New England should or can do or will do, and what Roger Goodell can will do. But um, what I do know is, look, AB is now a Patriot. 
Um, and I mean, that is a obviously a massive pickup for the uh, New England Patriots. Um, the situation is very reminiscent of uh, the reigning loss situation. It's almost identical, actually. Yeah, I mean, he literally just like accelerated the Brown the, the the Randy Moss playbook by like a year. He was like, yeah. you no know, Moss, you know, spent a year messing around he in Oakland. Played. He was just like, no, let's just we ain't gonna get to a year. Let's just get this over in training camp and get my way to New England. Um, yeah, he he he, he played yeah. the he, he studied the playbook. He executed the playbook to a T, better than even Moss could have. Yeah, and I think the major question with this Brown situation that and still people are going back and forth on is. Look, was this was this the plan the whole time? Was this a work in in wrestling terminology? Was this was this you know an act? Was this a scheme that they had been working on this whole time? Him and Drew Rosenhaus, even while he was in Pittsburgh, to get himself to New England, because New England was never. I mean, Pittsburgh was never going to trade AB to New England. They already made that clear. Um, and, you know, it's obviously logical why they wouldn't do that. So if that was his desired destination, there was only one way he was going to get there, and it was he would have to have been cut. Obviously, there's reporting from uh, Chris Mortensen that, you know, he sought out social media specialists, experts to, you know, find ways to, you know, find find out what ways in which he can get himself cut. <laughs> is that is this, I didn't even hear about that. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, that was that was what Chris Morris reported. So, uh, I mean, the one thing if you see from Hard Knocks, like he he had some dude who was like breaking down his analytics. I mean, AB is way more calculating than I think people give him credit for. Like the way oh, he, yeah. the, I mean, the the way he prepares and the way he trains, you have to be, you can't just be. You can't just be 100% chaos. Like, like yes, he does bring chaos, but he can't be. He and he's a chaos agent. But I don't know if he himself is chaotic in anything he does. Um, exactly. So that that's that that that's the that's the I think the crux of this issue right now. Is, and some people are saying, look, if this was the case and he did intentionally, and you know, the reporting kind of suggests that on some level, some of the foolishness was intentional. Um, then you want, I mean, some people are bringing, bringing in situations, should John Gruden suit? Should the Raiders suit? <laughs> you know, and... Well, they can't it, sue, they can't really sue for the phone, the video, because the video, John Gruden gave consent to to it, in a way. Because well, uh, if well, he... Not necessarily, I'm not necessarily the video, but just the fact that he intentionally uh, acted crazy. Uh, yeah, well, that that's another that's a whole other thing. Yes, that they yeah, have yeah. a case for. Um, like so that that's what people are that's what people are speculating. I don't think they would do that just for just because it creates more of a circus than they need. But I mean, look, the Raiders got screwed over. I mean, they gave a pick for a guy that never once wanted to play a game for them and intentionally tanked his value so that the team couldn't have him anymore. So the team had to get rid of him, only to then sign with. Uh, conference rival in like a, a, like a day later. So here's the thing about Oakland that like I I think there have been people that have been that have wanted to assess some blame to them for the situation falling apart way the way it did. 
I don't really give them any blame. I don't yeah, think I, I I don't think that any organization really could have handled a guy this it, for the people outrageous. And Alex Hughes, EJ, for the people that think that he should be blamed, I, I ask them and Alex Hughes, what could Oakland have done better? I think like, there's what, been a, I think there's I think there's a notion up? I think there's the notion that I've seen online that the Raiders knew what they were getting and this idea that you were gonna have these like slap on the wrist penalties to this guy when you know he's not going to show up to work you know he's going to be late like they said like a lot i've seen a lot of people say that mike mayock's ego got in the way of this working out i've seen that case made that's that's very that's very much in hindsight maybe it's fair maybe but the oakland raiders didn't have the equity that someone like new england has to come in and say that like like if he would have been traded to a championship organization he couldn't have acted like that or else he would have gotten the major penalties that and look maybe the Raiders should have carried themselves like the Patriots or like the you know the 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 Rams or somebody or a team that's a high level organization but I mean to me yeah anything they haven't made the playoffs in a long time yeah I I agree Kendall I think that to me I thought the Raiders gave him a lot of rope I really yeah they gave him probably in in hindsight obviously they gave him too much but I would have done the same thing. Yeah, but I think the the idea that somehow they were too much, they were too hard on him, I thought was, I don't see, I can't see that. I, I mean, he, again, this guy, I mean, as you can see, I mean, he was trying to get himself cut. I mean, he was so disruptive and so outrageous that I don't know how else they could have handled it. I think I kind of applaud Mayock by the end by saying, look, we're just going to go through and do the necessary things we have to do because this guy is clearly breaking all our rules and stuff. If there was one thing I think the Raiders did screw up. And it's the one it's the it was a it was a I think a colossal mistake at the very end was I don't know why in hell you would void his void his money but keep him on the roster for any second after that happened. Like I thought that that was the only mistake that seemed to be ridiculous to me by the Raiders because at that point once you and me and you talked about it off air like but you know we last week we were talking about the scenarios or how this AB thing could play out and I told you based on what I read but just common sense that if his if he gets fined or suspended for conduct detrimental and then the money gets voided then pack it up sweetheart it's over as Adam Chine would say like it's it's done like he's not gonna play for them you can't He's not going to go there and be on a week to week paycheck kind of guy. That doesn't that doesn't make any sense for him. And that kind of caliber player is just after you've taken away thirty million dollars from him, it's just he's never going to be on your side. And to me, it was foolish to parlay that move without it including an immediate release, because then it allowed the circus to continue for another you know six or seven hours. Where he's posting on social media, asking for them to, to to you know release him. Then he's getting his you know his video ready for when they he gets the release, and now he's posting the video of him getting released, and he's running around without a shirt, yelling he's free. Like he was able to embarrass the organization more easily by them delaying his release. Like it's almost like they thought that somehow, oh maybe he'll be okay with the fact that we took away thirty million dollars. Like. No, he's gonna. He's only shown ever since he's been there that he's gonna act like a clown. The idea that he's not gonna continue to embarrass your organization after you take thirty million dollars away from him seemed insane, and I thought that it 
it carried the narrative. Even I mean, this AV thing is literally like hour to hour at this point with this guy. So maybe you know seven or eight hours doesn't sound like a lot. But like that Saturday, that Saturday morning was brutal for Oakland. I don't think it had to be. They could have done what they did. They find him late in the evening, the Friday night, and they should have just. Well, as soon as they find him, just released him right there. Released him at midnight. <laughs> he would have woke up. He would have found he was released. And I don't think the circus that kind of happened that morning wouldn't have happened. That was the only thing I thought they messed up. I really don't have an issue with anything. He should have been fine for missing practices and missing those meetings, especially after you know, you know, the the situation with the helmet was cleared. Those meetings that he missed had nothing to do with the helmet. It was just him just not showing up for whatever reason. Like those fines. So he, what? He deserved to have. So then. Yeah, so then where do you stand on the conspiracy that this was the plan the whole time? When, when, when uh, did he decide, I don't want to be a Raider? Like, 100%. To me, I think that he decided that the moment Mayock had that press conference and said he's either all in or all out. To me, that was a very... No, it's screw this guy. That was a very clear... And people... I mean, A.B. is extremely vindictive. Like, like there's certain traits about him that are... Like people say he's unpredictable. Like he's not really that unpredictable. Like you can like he kind of has very obvious traits about him that then lead to his actions. And one of the traits we've seen is that he is very vengeful and very vindictive, and he's very petty. And he's never gonna want to. He never wants to feel like someone is gonna get the upper hand on him. And he hated it when he felt Ryan Clark was getting the upper hand on him. He hated it when he thought Ben Roethlisberger was getting the upper hand on him. Anytime he feels like someone's getting the last word. He didn't even like when Juju Smith got the MVP award. And Juju didn't even say anything bad about him. But just the idea that someone else got one over on him is never going to sit with him. So as soon as Mayock made him look like the bad guy by putting that ultimatum out there, basically saying you're all in or all out, and we've done all we can do, and anything else that happens from here on out is on AB. And and maybe this is a place where you do argue maybe Mayock stepped a little too far. Because at that point, it did. While he did say that the team has supported him, it kind of illustrated that the team will no longer support him in any of his foolishness moving forward, and that was not going to be enough for this guy. So, to me, in terms of where this fell apart and when he probably decided, I got to get myself out of here. I think it began the moment Mayock made that impromptu uh, comments, those impromptu comments to the uh, Oakland Raider uh, beat writer, saying that he either all in or all out. That was it. It was over the minute that happened. I'm torn. I, 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 that seems like the most plausible scenario, but the, the helmet situation was so bizarre that it makes me think that it could have been before that. The helmet, then at that yeah. point, it's like, well, then what was the tipping point? Because when he got traded, he was all about the Raiders. It wasn't like he was like, nah, I'm good. He was, he was all about, yeah, you know, I'm playing with Derek Carr. I'm a Raider now. John Gruden is my guy. And so clearly something shifted. You would think. I'm telling you. I mean, when AB wants to feel love, he wants to feel like. And John Gruden gave him that, but it didn't matter. Once the GM turned on him, that was it. And the GM is the guy that, even though John Gruden is the final decision maker in a weird power dynamic in Oakland, he he just wasn't going to stand for that guy still being employed while he plays. Right. It just wasn't going to happen. And now he's. You know, in New England. Last thing quickly on this Brown thing. As you said earlier, I talked more about the Oakland situation. Um, I also agree with you that I think this is a massive coup for the uh, the Patriots as long as whatever 
the situation is with the um, alleged sexual assault doesn't factor into the season in terms of him missing games or not being available. If that's not the case, I, I expect AB to be relatively on his best behavior. Um, will he miss some practices and miss and be late to meetings? Of course he will. I assume those will be handled in-house and you won't see the kind of lash outs in the outburst that we've seen from him. I think he'll be way more tamed. Uh, and to me, I, I think that the Patriots, to me, are now the prohibitive favorites to repeat. I, I think that it pains me to say that as a Jeff fan on this podcast. But um, I had the Chiefs before the season uh, winning the Super Bowl. But I, I think that now, for the first time, the Chiefs lost, you know, hell for however many weeks that's going to have with his shoulder dislocation. I think that the the uh, the Patriots now, you look at their offense, Edelman, Gordon, who I, I stand by my statement that I think he's still a little overrated. But, I mean, he's your third, third most talented receiver. Um, when you combine him with Antonio Brown and Julian Edelman, and Michelle and White in the backfield and Brady calling the shots. And the first like six games of the season, they have like no teams with winning records from last year. They're gonna maul all these teams. I mean, it's gonna be it's gonna be a real problem. And I I, I don't think this is gonna be a, a flop situation because sometimes the Patriots get these stars and they don't really work out in the Patriots. Yeah, way, so you know, to speak. I, I I do. I, there's this notion that New England. Every guy they get the second chance turns into Randy Moss. No, that's not true. Chad Ochocinco was a disaster. There's a lot <laughs> of other guys. There's a lot of guys who were disasters for New England. Albert Haynes was a terrible. Yes, guy. Albert Haynes was a disaster. Aldarius Thomas, disaster. I mean, they they got they've signed. They take them. a lot of swings. They take a lot of swings on some big name guys, and sometimes it, it completely blows up. Tim Tebow, you know. Like, <laughs> Yeah, they, they take some swings on guys, and it doesn't always work out. Sometimes you get Corey Dillon. Sometimes it works. Yeah, yeah, then you get your Corey Dillon, you get your Randy Moss, um, and then sometimes those are, you know, Darrell Revis was a great move. It You know, it, it, right. it varies. I think, to me, the difference in all those situations, to be honest, in naming those guys is the guys that were closer to their prime, yeah, to, yeah, I think it's still typically, play. like all the guys we named that didn't work out, their careers were over. Like they didn't go anywhere else and play well. Like right. that was the end. All the guys we named before that, besides Corey Dillon, who like played a while for New England, then just retired. Like all those guys, like their prime was like a year before, a couple of years before. It wasn't like they were so far removed that we'd never seen. Like oh well, they went to another place and they played better. It just didn't work out in New England. That just doesn't happen. Like if it don't work out in New England, that means it was the end of them. So. AB, I think, has a lot of football left, so I expect him to play at an extremely high level with the with the Patriots, um, who obviously were dominant in that Week One matchup. And to me, they look like uh, again, like uh, to me, the prohibitive favorite now for the Super Bowl. Um, I do want to talk about one of the other uh, teams that a lot of people were talking about before the season as uh, as a potential uh, uh, team that could make some noise in the playoffs this year, but they did not impress at all in Week One. That was the Cleveland Browns. And Kendall, I gotta say, I took a little too much joy, to be honest, in the Browns getting beat down the way they did in Tennessee against Tennessee at home. And I say that only because this is something that this team needed. I'm not gonna go crazy and say that oh, the team's done and write them off and they're 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 overrated. But I thought that this team and the way their stars were talking. 
and the hype around them got so crazy. And I was someone who, before the season, really before training camp and all this stuff kind of started circulating, I was one of those people that were high on the Browns. I thought the Browns were a playoff team. I thought the Browns would compete for a division title. Um, But I think it got out of control. And I think they came into that game way too cocky. And they faced a decent, solid, well-coached football team in Tennessee who doesn't beat, beat themselves, who uh, who play the right way, and they got embarrassed. And I was happy. I was happy to see it happen because between Baker Mayfield and all his talk about other teams, quarterbacks, and other fan bases, and Odell Beckham's out there wearing a three hundred thousand dollar watch, like, it was just a circus. That was an embarrassing performance by the Cleveland Browns, and I think it came right on time. I hope that this is the butt whooping they needed to get themselves on the right track, but. Even in the post game, I was annoyed by Baker Mayfield. And I, I Kendall, I've, I, you know me, I've defended Baker Mayfield on this show. So it pains me that he keeps getting on my wrong side here. But him saying, well, oh, well, now we got something to play for because now everybody's against us. I'm like, what? How, like, how, how is that the motivation that now yeah, you I mean, need to I play well? Whatever, whatever motivation. Like, he even, but no, but Kendall, they've been talking like they're going to be world beaters all offseason. Like, they're going to just stomp everybody. <laughs> then they get stomped in week one. Now they're like, well, now it's better because now everybody's against us. And now everybody's burying us. I'm like, I don't know. I, I <laughs> Again, like you said, whatever motivates you. But I just thought that, that even that was a little alarming to me. That you take that kind of beat down. And instead of maybe coming into the idea that we just didn't have it. And we didn't, we weren't prepared. And we embarrassed ourselves. They still turned it somehow into the media against them. I, I That was the only part that I couldn't under, understand. But I did take joy in the Browns getting beat down the way they did. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're a Browns fan, you have to hope that this was one of the situations where you just they came in, you know, kind of a I wouldn't say it's not a new team, but a lot of new faces on the roster, and they came in a little uh, lax and um, weren't ready for a Tennessee team that is not as bad as people may expect. Um, they weren't bad they, last year. They're not, yeah. a bad, they're not a bad team. They almost made the play. Did they make the playoffs or they, they just missed? I think they just missed last year. Yeah, they just missed the playoffs. So, no, I mean, we're not talking about a terrible team. Um, so, if you come in sleepwalking thinking that you're, you know, the, the, the best thing since sliced bread, I mean, you can lose to a team like Tennessee and you lose badly. Um, like, I I, 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 saw, I saw quite a bit of that game and especially uh, the Browns offense. And... They didn't play terrible. Like the first half, first three quarters really weren't. It was were fairly close. Just the fourth, the fourth quarter, Baker just made way too many mistakes, and the game got away from them. And Tennessee was was a was a well well oiled machine in that second half. Um, but I mean, look, Tennessee. I mean, Cleveland. It's not the end of the world. Um, I, I do it, like I agree that is a little alarming the the mindset, but that's also the way Baker Mayfield's wired. I know. So it's one of those things where he's never gonna, he's not the type of guy that's gonna you know give all the credit to the other team or he's gonna <laughs> yeah you know like there are certain players that are like that and you know sometimes it's great players that are gonna always make an excuse for why they made a mistake or why they're gonna put it on themselves or they're gonna put it on the team. Um, or put it on someone else like the media, but um, look, they, they obviously they still have the talent on paper, but you know this is also going to be a test of Freddie Kitchens' coaching ability. 
I think he should. I mean, he did a good job at the end of last year, but this is uh, this is kind of a new situation for him. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm excited to see how this team, you know, continues to play because, you know, one game week one, you never want to overreact. But at the end of the day, like what everybody thought about this team, is kind of irrelevant because in the NFL, a lot of these teams are the same. You know, there are very few teams out there, and there are some that are obviously great, and there are some that are obviously that obviously aren't great. But there are a lot of teams in that gray area in the middle. The Browns probably fall closer into that gray area, but in Week One they look like one of those teams that's obviously not great. So uh, the question is just: Was this more about Cleveland, or was it more about Tennessee? I tend to think that this was more about Cleveland not being ready for Tennessee. So yeah, I think this um, was more about Cleveland. They they turned the ball over yeah. like crazy. Their discipline. I mean, they had like almost 200 yards of penalties, which is why I think you mentioning Freddie Kitchens was right on. I think to me, like we could talk about Baker, we talk about Odell and his watch. I mean, to me, that was the big story was how his team, Freddie Kitchens, his first game as a head coach, his team looked so unprepared and looked so out of it. And they're so undisciplined. You know, obviously, you guys are grown men. They're professionals. So you can't, you know, he can't, you know, at a certain point, guys got to stop, just stop getting penalties. But at the same time, you know, people did kind of question why this guy was getting the job instead of Greg Williams. We know why Greg Williams didn't get the job. But it was interesting that this guy was the offensive coordinator and he was not the guy who was the head coach during that run they made late in the season. And would there be any kind of uh, ill effects by not taking someone like Greg Williams or not hiring someone with coaching experience if you didn't want to hire someone uh, with Greg Williams' background? And they took someone who was in the staff, who was the offensive coordinator during that run, but it was not the head coach. I was curious to see how his team would show up, and they just they again they looked terrible. It was a uh, it was it was just a complete disaster in the second half, and it, they completely fell apart. No adjustments were made, and they played worse as the game went on. So it was a bad sign. I think that I was happy to see it because that team was just getting way too big for their bridges. I think they needed this kind of loss. Um, so I'll be interested to see what they have. They play how they do against my Jets, who we'll talk about maybe in a, in a little bit. Uh, they also didn't uh, necessarily uh, distinguish themselves in Week One. But before I do get to, to, to the Jets, I do want to talk about uh, that so-called uh, running back, Lamar J- Jackson. Because he was not slinging it like a running back uh, on on Sunday. He was uh, completely on fire. He just smoked the Miami Dolphins. They won 59-10 to Baltimore. I, I don't even know where to begin <laughs> with that score. Um, one, the idea that Lamar Jackson would only run for like six yards. And they would win fifty nine to ten. That he throw ten like five touchdowns. Um, it says a lot about Lamar and uh, the work he's put in. I mean, he was throwing dimes. There was no question about uh, how great he was on that day. But man, I don't know if I've ever been. I don't know if there is a better bet for a team going zero and sixteen than the Miami Dolphins after watching one game. I mean. Yeah, that I mean, team didn't like they could compete against Miami Northwestern. I mean, they looked <laughs> that terrible. They got no speed on the field. They're overmatched. They're overmatched in the coaching. They're overmatched on the on the both sides of the ball on both sides of the line of scrimmage. 
they just they were helpless. Yeah, I that. And now like, you got guys, now you got guys immediately <laughs> going to their agents after the game, being like, "Yo, get me the, the hell out of here!" Yeah, you know how, you know how just, bad you have to yo. be to, to be a professional athlete in Miami and want to be one out. They're begging their agents to get them out of there. <laughs> like they like, "Yo, get me out of here! I don't want any part of this." And like, but, and you but, make that point, Kendall. But it, honestly, it makes sense because. These guys, remember, like, these guys hope to have long careers. They can't put this much bad tape <laughs> on their resume going into next and season. I was going to, I was going to, I, I, I thought you were going in a different direction. I was thinking, like, in this game of football, like, nobody wants to take a beating <laughs> week in and week out playing, playing for a bad team. Yeah. Like, no one wants to play a meaningless game and get all the, the hits and injuries that yeah. they're going to suffer throughout the season. And they know it's gonna happen. Yeah, you're getting beat by when forty. You know you're, gonna, you're gonna lose <laughs> at least fourteen games. <laughs> so, like, ideally, you're like, look, if I can get out now, get me out now, so I don't have, to, I don't have to play. At least, like, if I were on, you know, the Buccaneers, another team that people don't expect to be great. At least I feel like, all right, we can, we got, I can compete, and hopefully, we can compete to win games. But, I mean, look, I feel bad for Brian Flores. Um, I just wonder why he took that job. Because it was well, odd when he got the job because the guy was a linebacker's coach in New England. <laughs> but now it makes sense. I just don't think anybody wanted I think people were smart. I don't think people wanted that job. So I think, and yeah. it seems, if unless the organization is extremely rational and extremely patient, I, I wouldn't surprise me if he was one and done. I mean, Kendall, well, so there are a couple. He yeah. says he did sometimes. This was, that was one of those games that get you fired. Yes, he. I I do agree. That was one of those kind of games that if he got fired after week one, I would not have been shocked. That was uh, that. That, that know, was that bad. Even Ross now he's on the hot seat after one game. Yeah. No. Yeah. No question. Now the only thing I will say, I'll I'll answer some of those questions in a couple of ways. One in regards to why he took the job. Unfortunately, as you and I know, a lot of these black coaches. The opportunities are very scarce. And once you get one, the idea that you're going to turn it down, you may not get another one. And that's just a, a harsh reality that African-American coaches, assistant coaches have to deal with um, when they get head coaching opportunities. So in terms of why Flores took this job, that I could very well see that being something that comes up uh, in the kitchen table when you're discussing the situation. In regards to um, also talking about why he took this job, while I do agree that that was kind of a game that can get you fired and any other coach would definitely be on the hot seat, it sounds like this is probably our first true um, our first true example of the process coming to the NFL. Because the talk that's coming out of Miami is that they're tanking. Yeah, this was the plan. Dude. And that the players... At the end of last season. Yeah, and that like, the... Immediately after week 17, they're like... Oh yeah, the Dolphins are going to intentionally be bad next year if they can get two. And and that and the trade they did this past week, getting rid of Tunsil, getting rid of Stills, oh, those are the two best players. Those are the two best players on offense, and they just got rid of them. Now they got decent value for them. It wasn't like they just dumped them, but it was clear that they were in a situation where winning football games was not something they were trying to do. When you get rid of those two guys, and your team is as bad as it is. So, 
I look at this situation, Kendall, and this is our first true example of the process coming to the NFL, which is why these guys, as you said, they don't want to be a part of this. They don't want to be a part of taking all those hits and putting so much bad tape on their, on their, on, on their game footage. Like, these guys have careers. Like, these guys have careers and livelihoods to think about, and they can't just throw away a year for the sake of the Dolphins getting to a tongue of Iloa. These guys are putting their livelihoods at stake. They're putting their health at stake. And I'm sure the cornerbacks that were chasing Hollywood Brown all over the place, they don't want that tape every other week, or, you know, when teams are evaluating them this offseason about whether or not they should sign them. They see them getting burned every week because they don't got the kind of support. They don't got the pass rush. Like, they don't want to, They don't want that. That's why they're like, yo, get me out of here. Let me go somewhere where I can at least have a shot to play decently. So it's it's I mean, it's crazy. I never thought I'd see such an egregious example of tanking, but because of that, I have to I have to assume that Flores is somewhat in the clear. Cuz I don't know how the team is I mean, like the score was crazy only because it's the NFL. But like the 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 Rams, excuse me, the Ravens beating the Dolphins by f- almost fifty is not that surprising. I mean, the Ravens are a team that's a playoff team that thinks that they can maybe go far. The Dolphins are the worst team in the league, so them losing by fifty in a vacuum isn't that surprising. Happening week one is probably the shocking part of it. Yeah, you hope that like you hope that Brian Flores is, is going to be in a Brett Brown situation. I think I feel like that has to be what it is. I would hope that because that would be terrible if he's not. If they're trying to say go out there and still try to win some games. He don't got the he got Ryan Fitzpatrick taking snaps. How is that supposed to happen? Yeah, it's just yeah. I mean, I think they'll win a game because it's hard to go in sixteen. It's it's almost as hard. It's it's, it's almost impossible. I mean, we've seen it now plenty of times. Not plenty of times, but you know, twice. I would say they were a lock, but after what I saw from the Jets this past weekend, I can't say I can't guarantee the Jets are going to do anything right. Like I can't guarantee that. That's what I would need to do. They have to. I have to guarantee they twice wouldn't somehow screw it up against this team, and I can't guarantee anything after what I just saw. But it, do you do you feel like what do you make of Lamar's performance? Is this something to be super excited uh, about, or do you throw in the trash? And you say this team is not really even an NFL team he played. Look, Lamar. This is this is a equivalent of Louisville versus Bethune Cookman, so we can't take these passing numbers seriously. Yeah, like Lamar and Dak Prescott both had amazing performances, but they were both playing two consensus, you know, bottom feeders. Um, so it's hard for me to take too much from either performance. I, I think Lamar, you know, showed he's an improved passer, uh, and he has more weapons now. Uh, to his disposal, um, he's not going to throw like that and play like that in every game. He's not going to do that against every team. But um, the Dolphins are still an NFL team, so it, I, it's to his credit. And again, that shows his improvement. Shows he's been working. Prescott, I, you know, he's another guy. I, I think played extremely well and looked like the guy that we saw his rookie year, where you know, you know, he was seemingly a perfect quarterback, but. Um, uh, again, it's another another matchup where uh, I mean, the Giants are not an opponent that I look at and say, you know, that's a prove that you've proven to me that you you've reached a certain level. 
you know, now if they these guys show consistency week in and week out, now then that's when we start to to discuss, you know, where you guys stack among amongst the best quarterbacks in the league. But um, I, I'll have to see what these guys do over the next couple of weeks before we have that discussion. It, it does sadden me that uh, Saquon Barkley is just wasting his prime playing on a team that well, just has gladly no the, chance. the Giants only gave him, like, 10 carries. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the game is so out of reach so quickly. Yeah, they, he didn't take that. They were minutes. like, it's, what's the, it's like, what's the point? You know, what's the point of giving him 20 carries? I mean, would it have made it a closer game? Probably. He still, he still ran for 120 yards. And, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, still ran for 120 yards. Yeah, Evan Ingram and, and Barkley – I mean, their numbers are going to be outstanding this year. I, I don't know. It's not going to result to any wins. But Ingram's going to get the ball every single time, especially as long as Golden Tate is still out with his steroid suspension. And Saquon's going to make big plays for the however many times he touches the ball. Their numbers are going to be great, but the, the rest of the team is going to be terrible. But I do agree that uh, Doc Dak, he was outstanding. He put together maybe his best game as a pro. You can make the case. Four touchdowns, 400 yards. I mean, I don't need no know but numbers like that up. Um, I, I do have to take it with a grain of salt because the Giants are just, they're so, the defense is so new and so young um, that we got to see him play against better teams. But I do think that uh, it was, I think that it was smart for him and his agent to get their their uh, their ducks in a row ready because now the, the word going into uh, this weekend was that they were probably days away from this contract being finalized. I think it was smart for them to kind of set up the situation. Like, yeah, let's get this uh, deal close to the finish line right before we play the Giants. So we can put this, you know, 35 spot on them, throw four touchdowns to maybe get us finally across that finish line. Um, Kendall, your boy Kyler started his career with a tie. You're, you're the Kyler Murray guy on this, on this, uh, on, on this show. He uh he he showed some flashes. It was a really rough beginning. He got sacked Very by his rough. he got sacked by his own offensive lineman. Um, it, it, there were already yes. people there were already people who were uh, writing the the Cardinals Throwing obituary and, and and already saying that uh, Kingsbury was a bum. But again, similar to like the Jets, anything's possible with the Detroit Lions out there. Somehow Detroit Lions uh, allowed the Cardinals to get back into it. It was a really bizarre situation where the uh. The Lions had a, the Cardinals dead to rights on a third down play, and some and uh, uh your boy Bevel, who's calling the offensive plays for Detroit, called a timeout uh, right before the play started. And Matt Stafford, who I I'd never seen him go crazy, was just going crazy on the, on the sidelines. After they then uh, missed on a third down conversion on the next very next play. Um, he was beside himself about how they could have possibly uh, time called a timeout out of a play that was perfect for what Arizona was running. Murray, to his credit, they got the ball back. They drove all the way down the field, scored a touchdown, and got the two-point conversion. Um, but the no, there were no scores in overtime, which led to the tie. So uh, how did you uh, evaluate Murray's first day on the job? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously you say it was a shaky start, but, I mean, point blank, I mean, if Tremaine Brock could catch, oh my god, that game. Tremaine so, Brock, that 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 uh, that drop. Was he had a bad. He had a bad game. He got burned on that, a play by Amendola too. He had a really rough Sunday. So I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, I look, I think that uh, I think this is a, a this is a performance that you know I didn't say for the longest time. You can't take much out of the, the Kingsbury offense until the season starts. And the first three quarters were pathetic. No other way to put it. And you know, King, Kingsbury will tell him that will tell you that himself. Uh, but the fourth quarter was very, very uh, encouraging. If you're a Cardinals fan, if you're you know Kingsbury, if you're Somebody thinks Kyle Murray can be a very good quarterback. The fact that he showed the poise to execute a comeback like that uh, in his rookie year is impressive. Um, they, again, there are some concerns, and this Arizona. The, 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 the my biggest takeaway from this game is look, the, the Arizona Cardinals. As whatever offense you want to run with this team, whatever gimmick you want to throw out there, there's their talent pool is still the coverage too, still too bare to make up for. Um, to make up for the fact that they don't have an off the line, you know, like the, this offense can't do that right now. Kingsbury and Kyler can't just make up for the fact that, you know, they're 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 weak in a lot of areas. So, I mean, I think this is a this is still a rebuild process. You know, you hope that Kingsbury, you hope that Murray can stay healthy, but um, I think he'll put up numbers. I you know I think he'll probably turn the ball over, uh, but I think they'll throw the ball a lot. I mean, threw the ball fifty one times. Yes, uh, this weekend, and I mean a lot of it's because they were down by so much. But you know, I expect him to throw the ball thirty-five full times, pretty much almost every game. The one thing I did like to, what I saw from uh, Kyler was I did think that he did a decent job of not taking those hellacious hits. Um, uh, he got down a lot when he had to. Um, he didn't expose uh, his body to unnecessary contact uh, when he got into space. And sometimes the best friend for a terrible offensive line is a quarterback who's extremely mobile. And this guy, I mean, he's as quick as I've ever seen somebody playing behind center. And I'm including Michael Vick in that. Like, I'm not saying he's more quick. I'm saying he's as quick as anyone I've ever seen. Now, I don't think his... Yes. Now, I don't don't know. He's not as fast as Michael Vick. But... I mean, there are situations where, like, he just looks like he's dead to rights. And he's just so quick that they can't corral him. So that's going to help him out a little bit. Now, you don't want him running for his life the whole 16 games, but the line ain't getting any better, probably. So this is probably going to be his um, scenario the whole year. The one good thing about this team is they do have some decent players with Larry Fitzgerald and David Johnson. So. Kirk, yeah. yeah. I mean, they have weapons. They have some players, and those guys, uh, Johnson and Fitzgerald, played well on Sunday. So, if those guys can give them some help, this is a team that's probably going to be one of the five worst teams in the league. But uh, it was encouraging that they played against a, a fairly talented team, and they were able to come back and, and actually tie it. You know, that game looked, like, completely over. Uh, but Matt Stafford, man. What, that, that, I mean, the fact that he almost threw that game away... I can't. I still can't believe he made that throw. I'm sitting here on Tuesday oh, night, and that, that was. was a, yeah. I mean, that, that would have been one of the worst throws I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, like he this. That pick. What is he in his tenth year? How do you make that? How do you make that throw? I mean, that was. He fell asleep. Honestly, that, yeah, that was, and that was scary in terms of how ridiculous that was. And if I was a Detroit Lions fan, I would feel really terrible about that game, and about this season. If you couldn't beat this team in that kind of situation, and your quarterback was a ten-year vet who's making a lot of money, it just has a complete 
brain fart and just almost throws, just literally almost just throws the game away. And in a situation where there's a 99.9% chance the game's going to end a tie, he did the only thing that could have lost in the game almost. And it wasn't for Brock just dropping the ball (laughs) that they would have lost. Like, that's that's unbelievable. And that he's your best player. So, not a lot of upside to the Detroit situation in that uh, game either. But, um... I do want to finally talk about my Jess Kendall because this Sunday was uh, brutal. There's no other way to describe it. The Jess court forced four turnovers in the first half. Somehow they were still only up by just six points. Um, they did eventually extend the lead to 16 going into uh, the late in the third quarter. But it's the New York Jets, so no lead is safe. And somehow Josh Allen was able to engineer uh, several drives on um, three in a row that ended in scores, including a game winning touchdown uh, uh, late in the in the fourth quarter that sealed it. Look, the Jets, in terms of defense, now the defense fell apart in the second half in a way that was uh, kind of shocking based on how dominant they were for most, most of the game. What I will say is they were excellent until C.J. Mosley got hurt. In fact, C.J. Mosley was probably going to be the player of the game. I don't know who I don't know if they announced the AFC player, defensive player of the week yet, but he had a great chance to get it because he was outstanding. He had it pick six early in the game. He had a fumble recovery. He was uh, every bit the money that they spent was well worth it for that one game in terms of how he played. Um, so if there's any silver lines to what happened, you say, okay, well, Mosley went out with the groin. You assume he'll be back. Uh, but that the defense was different when he wasn't out there. If he gets back out there, he's healthy. The defense looked pretty good. Um, Terrain Johnson looks like a shell of himself playing with that bad hamstring. I don't know what they're going to do with him. But otherwise, defense plays strong. The issue was the offense. And I I got to say, man, I was not that high on the Gates hire when they hired him. Um, he seemed like a guy that looked the part, but I didn't see anything in Miami that suggested that he was the kind of offensive mind that, uh, that could really, you know, transform how a team looks. I thought Miami's offenses were pretty pedestrian after as soon as he left Peyton Manning. Uh, and, 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 uh, and, and that's, that's how I viewed Gase and his, uh, performances in the two years he was there. The Jets offense after all of this off season, after getting Le'Veon Bell, Jameson Crowder, who was great in his first game as a Jet, for them to look like the way they looked, where they only scored six points in the first half. They only put together 16 points as a whole. When you got four turnovers, you got a Maserati playing a quarterback in Sam Darnold. It was disheartening. I mean, I looked at this game similar to the Freddie Kitchens uh, uh, situation in Cleveland. I, I squarely put this game to me on Adam Gase. I just don't understand how a defense in Buffalo that's good. That's no question about it. They're a very good defense. But just how they, they couldn't attack them any more aggressively than they did. I thought the, uh, the play calling was extremely conservative. That's the line was a mess. They they played terrible. So, Gase, that's not necessarily his fault. That's an individual situation. But I, I just was really down on the Jets, and I was I was excited about this season. And I thought, you know, up sixteen zero, they should have been up thirty. But I'm like, okay, you know, they can piece together uh, this, you know, the rest of this game, and they'll they'll finish it out. But then to blow it, it just it just left a really bad taste in Jets fans Jets fans' mouths. Um, it is week one, so you don't want to completely overreact. But if you come in and you hire Adam Gase and your idea is that he's an offensive coach, 
He's going to be great for Sam Darnold. And now we're going to get some more explosive plays offensively with Gase and Le'Veon Bell in the fold. And then you put up 16 points after getting four turnovers. That's just a, a terrible performance. And, and and it's definitely disheartening if you're a Jeff fan. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, look, it, it, I mean, obviously it's, it's an unfortunate loss if you're a Jets fan, but um, – and games like that are games you have to win. But, I mean, I I don't I didn't have Super Bowl aspirations for the Jets team. It's, it's really about the development of Sam Darnold this season, um, continuing that growth, and hopefully putting him in certain winning situations. Um, and like you said, that a lot of it's the guys around him didn't step up. But um, it, you know, I don't think all hope is lost after this, after this game. Um, you know, me as a, as, a, as a, uh, someone who's uh, obviously been been a Vikings fan on this show, uh, they, they had a nice win. You know, uh, obviously against the Atlanta Falcons, um, you have to feel like. Even though it's one game, and again, even though it's week one, there were a lot of encouraging signs, uh, particularly Dalvin Cook, who yes. had a disappointing second year, really, really uh, kind of broke out in his first game. So you have to feel good about that if you're the Minnesota Vikings. But um, Atlanta was really sleepwalking. You know, I, you know, Matt Ryan looked uh, shaky. I watched a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of film on Matt Ryan. In that week, in that first game, he just he looked. Uh, I, I just I don't know, you know. I mean, the Vikings defense really got after him, really pressured him, and you know he made some very errant throws. So uh, he'll have to look better next week. But um, it, it, that was a I thought that was a very interesting game because both teams are teams that want to come out of the NFC this this, this season, and one team looked like a legit contender, and the other team looked like a team that won't compete for a playoff spot. Yeah, I actually think I like how at the end you kind of uh, looked at these two teams as kind of mirrors of each other in terms of how they came into the year. Both teams, um, I believe, did not make the playoffs that last year. And both teams that have had high aspirations and have gone deep in the playoffs in recent history. So they're kind of teams that you look at them and you say you suggest maybe the window may have closed or is closing on these teams. But they're also uberly talented, so you feel like in any given year, they could maybe make another run. So they kind of mirror images of each other in some ways. So this was going to be a fascinating matchup, and I agree that it was very disheartening for the Falcons to look that hapless. If Matt Ryan, again, another veteran, to look that helpless um, against the Vikings. I got to say, man, uh, you know you love Zimmer. This was a Zimmer special in regards to how they played offensive football. I mean, Absolutely. They, 38 carries. Kirk Cousins only had thrown the ball 10 times, and they dominated the Falcons. Yeah. I mean, if Mike Zimmer could play that way uh, every <laughs> every week, he would love to play that way. Um, the way they got for the quarterback, they got four sacks. They had two interceptions. That That's Zimmer football. And if they, um, if, if they continue to play that way all season, obviously they're going to be force me reckoning with uh i agree dalvin cook was uh was just tremendous i mean he looked like he's gonna be a problem this year and look we've kind of gotten um numb to the acl injury and just what it means for guys and because so many guys are starting to come back quicker and be effective but 
for a lot of guys, the first year is just almost like just trying to get back into shape and trying to get back into like muscle memory of playing again. This guy is now a second year removed from that injury. He looked quick. He looked strong. He did not look like the same running back last year that he was last year. And I think that a second year after the injury, I think it helped. I think it helped him. I think that that was a different Dalvin Cook we saw on Sunday. And if he plays that way all season, uh, Vikings going to be tough because they already got a great receiving core, and they have a quarterback who, if he does, he's not asked to do too much, is extremely accurate, and the defense is always going to be strong. So. Um, Vikings, very encouraging uh, for how they played. Obviously, not very encouraging if you're uh, a fan of the Falcons. Um, I guess it's great to wrap our week one stuff talking about the Monday night game, not the Raiders, Raiders game, but the Texans Saints game, which was a, a barn burner to say the least. Uh, this game was fascinating for a lot of different reasons to me, kind of. One, um, the Texans still have issues protecting. It. It, this to me looked very much like a lot of the game Texans played last year. Can't protect the quarterback. Watson's able to kind of overcome it, but then the defense doesn't make the plays needed to 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 kind of seal the deal. This has kind of been there. This has kind of been their situation since Watson came to the team, and they hoped that adding uh, adding Tunsil was going to maybe help a little bit. It's it's so it's too early to to know if that is going to indeed help them. But they had still a lot of problems in week one. Uh, but the talent at wide receiver for both of these teams was really uh, on on display. Uh, Hopkins was sensational despite some of the drops he had. Fuller had just a remarkable catch down the field against Eli Apple. Uh, this was a fun game. I, I just thought this was a fun game. I feel like these are two teams that will make the playoffs. I think for the Texans, though, the issues of not being able to protect Watson is becoming concerning, especially coming off of the Andrew Luck retirement. It's just kind of every time I see a young quarterback running for his life, not getting the count protection, taking hits, it's now going to harm him back to Luck. And when I look at an offensive line that's going to that struggled like the Texans did, you just can't help but wonder, like, how many years are they taking off Watson's career by not being able to protect him, especially when you yeah. see Cam Newton kind of be the shell of himself that he is. At taking the hits he took throughout his entire career. Yeah, the concern with Watson definitely comes with, you know, also he's just a guy who's had a lot of major injuries. So, you know, there are some guys where you kind of have less concern. You know, it's only James Winston having really dealt with injuries, a big guy. You can kind of take some punishment uh, to some extent, of course. Everyone's human. But it's only Deshaun Watson's been, you know, a little bit more fragile. Uh, he's had a couple major knee injuries. So. Yep. He's really not someone that you want to have um, taking all these hits. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm interested to see. <laughs> I mean, hopefully they make some sort of, you know, adjustment or you know, I mean, I'm interested to see whether what his availability will be like for next week. But um, no, I mean, it was, a, it was. I mean, that was just a heck of a game. I, I, no, it's tough to take. It's tough to have too many takeaways besides. That was great football. Yeah. Um, you know, the the, uh, the the end of that game was a little electric and back and forth, but uh, you have to feel good about both teams. I think if, if, you're, if you're a fan of either one, I mean, those are two teams that are Super Bowl contenders, I think. And they they, they both showed up to play Monday night, so credit to both teams, both coaches. 
yeah, these are these are two teams I feel like they have a shot at the Super Bowl. We saw why in this game. I thought seeing the uh, the Saints really kind of get off the mat after a really rough first half. And Saints have had some trouble in Week Ones in recent years. So we see the play they way see the way they played. I did kind of feel like there was a hangover from what's happened in the conference championship game last year, which to be honest, I'm starting to get tired of. I'm tired of hearing about that. Like this is a new season. Get over it. I, I don't know. I can't remember a fan base harping on a bad call for this long. And I get it. It was go- to go into the Super Bowl. But I mean, I saw the Seahawks just get robbed in one Super Bowl in a Super Bowl <laughs> with terrible calls the entire game. And their families wasn't talking about it going into the next year. Like, it was the biggest. ESPN made it the hugest story for the week. They talked about it all throughout Monday Night Countdown. They talked about it all throughout the broadcast. Enough. We all know you got screwed. We can move on. And I honestly think the team is still holding on to that. I think that was why they played so poorly offensively in the first half. Drew Brees threw an interception in the red zone to Merciless. That was just ridiculous. I mean, just plays you don't normally see from him. Like, uh, so I, I hope that maybe them kicking it into high gear in the second half is was maybe them exercising some of those demons and moving on. But it doesn't seem like a fan base or a city or a team that really forgets about anything. So usually when you, you hear coach speak, they say, oh, you know, last year was last year. We're on to a new year. I mean, a lot of stuff you were hearing from Peyton was like, this is a team that feels like they're Super Bowl worthy and this year. After what happened last year, they want to prove it. I was surprised that about how much they were infusing them falling short last year into this season. That never seems to really work well for people. So this will be an interesting te- case study because, like the old coach speakers, you never harp on what happened last season. You always move forward. And teams who stay in the past, they never get past it, and that's it. it carries into lackluster following seasons. The Saints don't seem to be taking that adage. They seem to be taking that baggage from last season and bringing it right to the season. They brought it right to week one. The energy about the referees in that game was palpable. You had fans wearing referee uniforms in the, in the, in the you know, you know, Mardi Gras-styled referee uniforms in the stands. I mean, they're, they're fully embracing we're here for vengeance from last season. And the last team I could think of that actually... The last professional team I can think of that really carried that into the next season was Dallas, the Dallas Mavericks, when they lost to the Heat in the playoff in the in the NBA Finals, whatever year that was. I want to say it was 05. They carried that and they they made it their mantra the next season, and they actually ended up um, having one of the best seasons in NBA history, and then lost in the first round of the playoffs. I can't say that the reason why they lost was because of the Miami situation, but that was the last time I remember a team really embracing their failure from the previous year as part of motivation for the next season. Let's see how the Saints do this year. Um, we talked a lot of football for most of the show. Let's let's wrap the show quickly talking a little bit NBA because I did want to get some of this Kevin Durant stuff in there because I found his comments in the Wall Street Journal fascinating. I found the fact that he was even talking to the Wall Street Journal fascinating. So uh, Kevin Durant finally opened up a little bit about just his entire situation and, and and what happened and why he decided to leave uh, the Golden State Warriors. And there were some interesting nuggets in there uh, in regards to just kind of uh, his outlook on the NBA today. 
he said that he's he he, he hates uh, the circus that goes around it. He says that some days I hate the circus of the NBA. Some days I hate the players that the players let the NBA business, the fame that comes with the business, alter their minds about the game. Sometimes I don't like being around the executives and the policies that come with it. I hate that. He added that uh, we talk about mental health a lot. We only talk about it when it comes to players. We need to talk about it when it comes to executives, uh, media, and fans. He also mentioned um, never really fitting in with the Golden State Warriors, uh, saying that, you know, essentially that, you know, they were kind of a different group and that he was kind of his own person and that it just never felt 100% right him being there. Uh, His exact quote was, uh, as time went on, I started to realize I'm just different from the rest of the guys. It's not a bad thing, just my circumstances and how I came up in the league. And on top of that, the media always looked at it like KD and the Warriors. So it's like nobody could get a full acceptance of me there. Um, and then lastly, I think the last interesting part, well, there's two last interesting parts. One, he, little thing he talked about with Brooklyn, he mentioned that Kyrie Irving was his uh, best friend in the league. And the uh, love that he was shown by uh, the Nets fans when he would come as a visiting player over the, over the years had a lasting impact on him. And that he still uh, has a lot of animosity towards the city of Oklahoma City and the Oklahoma City Thunder after how everything went down with uh, him being labeled a snake and a cupcake. And uh, he still holds on to it. And he's and he says he will never return because of it. Uh, he said, quote, uh, such a venomous, uh, toxic feeling when I walked into that arena after joining the Warriors. And just the organization, the trainers and equipment managers, those dudes uh, is pissed off at me. Ain't talking to me. I'm like, yo, this is where we're going with this because I left a team and went to play with another team. I'll never be attached to that city again because of that. I eventually wanted to come back to that city and be a part of the community and organization, but I don't trust nobody there. Uh, The ish must have been fake what they were doing. The organization, the GM, I ain't talked to none of those people, even had a nice exchange with those people since I left. So a lot of KD, a lot of thoughts. What are your thoughts, Kendall? Yeah, I mean, I don't have much to say about Kevin Durant. I mean, I'm not well, you got a podcast, so you got to say something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not, not a Nets fan. Uh, I'm not a Warriors fan or a Thunders fan. Does it shed any light on how he's been acting and his his approach to this summer? Does this interview, do you feel like you learned anything from this interview? I mean, not really. I mean, I feel like, Kevin Durant, you know, he, he, I mean, he, he, he didn't like being in Oklahoma City, or he didn't like the reaction that he got. Not surprising, he seems like uh, takes things personally. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, the stuff about you know being in Brooklyn and you know it, whatever he whatever he says about the stuff that he cares about, you know, a lot of the Brooklyn thing was a business decision. And, a lot, of, a lot of probably beyond basketball stuff that that took place with that situation, but um, no, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like you know, he's uh, Kevin. Kevin is not gonna be on the court for me. You know, he's not gonna be on the court for at least you know till April, if not until next year probably. So you know, he's got a party. Wonders if he has to say this stuff to kind of I would say stay relevant, but to, you know. 
it's better to say stuff now than say it during the season when it yeah. be a distraction. So yeah, um, and during, and during training camp, media day, and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, if you're a Nester, I guess you're glad you got the stuff out now. But I, I mean, I don't really care too much about it. I have I have some feelings about it. Number one, I think that the Wall Street Journal as a outlet was not an accident. Kevin Durant has made it very clear he wants to make as much money as possible. Uh, being a business mogul is something that interests him. So if you're into that kind of thing in the New York scene, the Wall Street Journal is the place to go. Uh, the audience reading the Wall Street Journal is also the audience interested in business and money and finance. So, uh, to me, Kevin Durant's moves here are very clear. Even though he's not talking about business, really. I do think him wanting to get his face and name and personality in front of those that audience in New York City. And just really in all, all across the world, too. Because um, everybody reads the Wall Street Journal. Uh, was not by accident. In regards to... I'll be honest, I thought the Oklahoma City stuff was, it was a little sad. I, like, I, I get it. And in some ways, I wonder if he'll change. Because LeBron eventually got over what happened with him in Cleveland. And I don't think what KD got was any worse. But I do think it kind of speaks to, it speaks to a personality difference between him and LeBron that LeBron saw the possibilities and what he could do if he came went back in the storyline for him and also obviously the proximity it is to his home in terms of Akron, uh, what it would mean for the city. That he was able to overlook pretty much a lot of the same things that KD said he went through in in Oklahoma City. He talked about how people were like spray painting the for sale sign near his home. Like it sounded really terrible. Uh I, I don't know if I don't think it's a you know I, I don't think it's a bad thing that he feels like you know oh well, I'm done with them and because I, I get it I do feel like a lot of this interview however KD KD's one of those guys I feel like he rarely isn't wrong in terms of like him his feelings about things I do feel like a lot of times he he absolves himself of any any responsibility for how things turn out. Uh, right. And the OK Oklahoma City thing, I think is the, it's the most poignant one when I think about this conversation, which is why I keep asking the same question that I asked today: Is Kevin Durant okay? I generally worry about him because I do think he, this stuff bothers him way more than it did LeBron. To be honest, like if you're just comparing two people who have gone through similar experiences, I think LeBron was able to shield himself from this stuff a little better than KD does because KD is so obsessed with being on social media. And I think he is more obsessed with people liking him and people saying good things about him than LeBron was that this bothers him more. The OKC thing he's talking about, you know, the people not showing him love, the training staff not showing him love, the organization not showing him love. I just think it's really naive to think that you could tell the organization and the team's best player, second best player at the time, that you're coming back and it's all good. And the next day you go to, the Hamptons and sign with the Warriors and think they're going to be good with you. <laughs> I, I just look like I just don't think I just think that that's kind of I think it's kind of ridiculous for him 
to play that role and act like, oh, all I did was just change teams. It's like, no, fam. That's not what happened. Like, it's really naive and really ridiculous and disingenuous if you suggest that all you did was just change teams and that's why they were mad. If you treated that last season the way you treated this last season with the Golden State Warriors, like when they all knew you were out and there was no question and you were acting like you were out, that's why there's no hard feelings there because you made your intentions clear. You didn't make your intentions clear. By all reports, you acted extremely shady the day the days before you decided to leave. And then you didn't really do anything about it afterwards. You didn't try to make it any better. So I just thought that that spoke a lot. I mean, he talked about people need to talk about mental health in regards to the media and the fans. I don't know. That just seemed like a weird statement, too. Cause I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a backhand shot. It's a, it's a, it's the backhanded compliment right there. Like, yeah, we can talk about the media and the fans because you know they're they're psychos. <laughs> I mean, we all know that's that look, men, mental health as a whole is something that we all need to take more seriously and we all need to advocate for. But as you said, there's a way. There's a there's a way to. I don't think it's in the right place. Maybe right, exactly. There's a way to advocate for it that doesn't sound so petty. Right, like he put it, he made it. He still somehow made an advocacy for mental health and a me versus you thing, which it didn't. He didn't have to be. Um, maybe I'm reading too much into his statements. I'm going to give him that caveat uh, because I, I wasn't obviously I wasn't with him when he said it, and you're reading just quotes on a piece of paper. So I'm just going by what I saw. But when you say people talk about the players' mental health, they need to be talking about fans and executives and. And media people about mental health. It just seems weird because I feel like the country as a whole has opened a conversation about mental health that's been way more open than maybe in the history of my lifetime. So why would you just say we as a, as a whole need to talk about mental health as a country? Like the way he kind of targeted specific people that have gotten on his bad side. <laughs> he, he hates the fans um, who, who give him crap on social media. Uh, he hates the media. He feels uh, treats him unfairly and writes about him unfairly. And clearly, there have been executives. He mentioned Sam Presti, not by name, but said the GM of the team. Uh, you know, didn't, didn't treat him right in Oklahoma City, and he related that to mental health somehow. So that seemed a little. It dis- is an interesting situation. Yeah, that it, 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 it was disingenuous and a little weird how he he went about that. With these conversations, I don't know. And I, I, you could never tell. I don't know what the setting is. I would love to know follow-ups to like some of these statements he's saying. Because a lot of these statements are just, like statements that are kind of like... They have a lot... Like They're kind of vague, but there's a lot to them if you dig into them. And no no disrespect to the re- reporter who, who reported it. I, forgive me, I don't have his name in front of me. Um, for getting the interview and getting this candid KD, he did a great job. But on that mental health thing, especially... I would have loved to have seen a follow-up to like, okay, well, what steps do you think should be taken? Or uh, what signs have you seen from fans and executives and media people to suggest they need mental, they, they, they need mental help? Like those are, those are big things to say. And anyone who is clinically diagnosed anybody with anything is a lot of times whenever they need something, they will, project that onto someone else so kevin projecting that other people need mental health awareness and mental health help 
does say something to me, but, and shout out to J.R. Moringer, who wrote that, by the way. Uh, I want to make sure I got his name here from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so those are my takes on it. Um, I think that the Brooklyn thing, I agree. I, I don't care about to me. That was like, uh, like Brooklyn fans showed you love. Like what? Like yeah, Brooklyn doesn't, yeah. they don't have fans. They don't have fans. <laughs> like, like we got to stop acting like they have, they have a fan base. They don't have a fan base. They, the people, the people who Kevin Durant said showed them love at the Barclays Center, they were Warrior fans. <laughs> they were Warrior fans. They were they were Thunder fans. They they were not Brooklyn <laughs> Nets fans. So that, that oh yeah, the, the city, the Brooklyn, the the borough of Brooklyn has shown me so much love over the last years. I'm like, what? No, they weren't. They, those were not. They were Brooklyn people. They weren't Nets fans. So relax. Uh, and then uh. I, I, the one thing I did fully understand with him was I did fully understand the uh, the idea that he didn't fit in with the Warriors. He didn't fit in with the Warriors. That was something that I definitely I definitely felt like I I, I understood because he is right that like as soon as he got there it kind of always kind of became a how is he gonna fit in or is it better without him? I, I can get from his standpoint why he felt like that that just was never. The seamless transition that it should have been off the court. On the court, they were fantastic. But I do, I, I didn't understand that part of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't, Durant. You sound dumb. You sound dumb. With, you sound dumb with KD. You know, he claims he didn't fit with Golden State. I mean, all right, whatever, dude. You know, guy. <laughs> That year, whatever, two, three championships, two championships, um, two finals MVPs. But it, it's funny, Kendall, because like he he says he he while he felt accepted, he understood he'd never be one of those guys. It also to me still kind of absolves him again of any blame of the situ in the situation a little bit. Because so many of the people were saying that when he went there. <laughs> the whole idea was that you're a superstar, all-time great player with a chance of being a top 10 or top 5 player of all time. And you're joining a 73-win team. Like, everyone saw that this was weird. And is he, and now he's like, yeah, you know, I never really fit in with those guys. It's like, yeah, we know. That's why we kept saying it. And now you're hitting, sitting here today using it as a justification for leaving, kind of blaming the media for it, while I understand that, yes, the media did harp on it so much that it probably made it difficult to fit in. I do feel like, again, he, he kind of lacks a lot of self-awareness in some of these comments. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, again, at the end of the day, we'll see what Durant does <laughs> in about a year. We'll see, we'll see what he does on the court. All right, uh, it's time to wrap this show. And uh, Kendall, I'm going to leave it to you with uh, some really amazing news. So uh, take it away. Yeah, so, uh, you know, obviously you have Kendall's court. And, uh, you know, the, we talked a lot about the NFL, but we didn't talk about the uh, Redskins-Eagles game because uh, I, was, I was on the sideline for that game. Uh, we must have had really good. You must have had really good tickets. You must have, you must have paid a lot of money. Yeah, I know, right? So uh, this season I'll be working with the Eagles, so in some capacity. So 
Uh, we'll mostly stay away from you know talking about them because you know privy to a lot of team secrets. But um, uh, you know, I'll obviously have a better insight on you know the NFL in general. So that should be uh, it. Should be a fun experience. But uh, yeah, so if you, if you do not hear us talking about the NFL or talking about the Eagles. Um, well, at least me personally, uh, it, it is intentional, but yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it's wild. Yeah, man, I do yeah, want to, I really want to give Kendall, uh, a, a big shout out here. Um, you know, I'm very proud of him for, for landing this gig with the Philadelphia Eagles this season. Obviously they're a world-class organization, great coaching staff, great front office, and um, for Kendall and, uh, to, to, to join that staff this season is just incredible. It's still kind of unbelievable. Um, you probably heard it in our kind of coverage say, not only did we not talk about the Eagles, Kendall a little more guarded with some of his, 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 his commentary. You can kind of expect that for the majority of the season as we kind of like adjust with how we should kind of, you know, attack the NFL given that Kendall is now working for the NFL this season, which is still kind of hard to believe. But I just thought I wanted Kendall to say it. I really wanted to give him uh, a big shout-out. It's, it's a great accomplishment, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, uh, what the Eagles uh, accomplished now that Kendall is somehow in the fold. It's still crazy to say this. But um, but uh, congratulations, bud. You, you, you definitely deserve it, so I'm, I'm happy for you. Um, on that note, um, on that's that a good note, place to wrap the show this week, guys. So, thank you so much for listening in to the uh, New Generation Sports Talk podcast. Of course, you can catch all of our podcasts on New Generation uh, Podcast Network on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. That's where you can catch New Generation Hero Talk. We talk about comic books and superhero movies. Um, Imperial Broadcast, we talk about the latest Star Wars news. And uh, if you're a big Game of Thrones fan, we have a whole library of uh, Game of Thrones summaries uh, called the Throne Tales Podcast. So all those podcasts you can find, again, on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Also, catch us on YouTube, New Generation Media. If you follow us on social media, we're on uh, Twitter at New Generation Pod, on Instagram at New Generation Podcast, and on uh, uh, Facebook, New Generation Media. Of course, you can find me on social media at EJ underscore Stewart and on Instagram at Action EJ. Once again, that does it for now. Well, we will be back soon with another edition of the New Generation Sports Talk podcast. For Kendall, I'm EJ. Peace.